All right, uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take key points uh, from the summary that I wrote uh, and summarize what I believe are the high points of the Gospel of John. You don't have to look at your outline because I'm not referencing the outline. I'm going to kind of do this uh, uh, from my own knowledge uh, and work uh, in writing the Gospel. And these are some of the key points that I'd like you to, to remember. First of all, that Jesus was God from the beginning. Right from the beginning of time, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God in every possible way. When you see the Gospel of John, it makes it clear that uh, uh, he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and we know also from from Gospel of John that Jesus was the creative agent. Jesus actually was the creator of the universe. Uh, and so God the Father delegated that, that uh, responsibility to the Son. And so everything that you see in this world, everything that we look at, from the oceans to the mountains, Christ, Christ created it. Imagine what it was like to be Jesus and to walk in the very world that he created. Can you imagine what that had to be like? Uh, and, and even as he was despised and, and rejected, uh, and so to me, that, it's, uh, that's such a profound uh, thing. I mean, I, I often think about this. I mean, here he is with, with this group of 12 guys who never really got it uh, until, he, until he was crucified on the cross. Never really got it. And think about it. He had all the secrets of the universe. He knew how everything had come together. And I laugh when I see our scientists now, you know, they find some distant star and making this announcement, the universe is still expanding, you know, it's amazing, uh, and, and yet Jesus knew it all because he created it. I mean, when you think about that, uh, put that in the back of your mind as you, as you read, read the Gospel of John, and it's just awe-inspiring. And then we came across John the Baptist, uh, and a man who, who was prophesied to come in the Old Testament, the man who would pave the way for Jesus. And Jesus said about John the Baptist, there was never a greater man born of women all right, than this man uh, who was uh, sold out for God in so many ways and prophesied about God. And then the lesson for there, there in John the Baptist when, was when he was in prison, when he was put in prison because uh, of his religious zeal and and the authorities were afraid of him. And there he is, after all he's done for God, I want you to think about those low points too, that you suffer, that he suffered. He's imprisoned. And there he sends a note out to Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one? Are you still the one? After, I've, after everything that I've done, I baptized you, I saw the Holy Spirit descend on you, and yet the question I still have, is it possible? Are you the one? And, then, and that has to lift your hearts because... If someone as great as John the Baptist, seeing what he saw, could still have some doubts at that moment that he's in prison, you understand that we all go through dark times. We all go through difficulties, and yet God raises us up. Uh, and that's not to besmear, uh, besmirch John the Baptist. It's not at all. It's the nature of humanity that we come across, and we have these, these uh, issues from time to time. Then we come across Nicodemus, and uh, this is one of the bedrock principles in the Gospel of John, uh, because Nicodemus was a holy, religious man. You would say there can be none better in Israel than this guy, 
uh, a teacher, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin. And yet when, when he comes to meet Jesus at night, by the way, not during the daytime because he was ashamed to be seen with him during the day, he was concerned about his political influence uh, amongst the religious elite, but he goes to see Jesus uh, and, and he kind of butters Jesus up a little bit and said, Master, we know nobody could do the things you do except if they're coming from God. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, if Jesus could say you must be born again to Nicodemus, a man who is at the top of the religious food chain in Judaism, how much more does he speak to us today? You must be born again, meaning you are aligned with the law, Nicodemus. You're following the law, and I'm telling you flat out, Nicodemus, the law will never save you. You're not going to be saved by the law because no human being has ever lived by the law and perfected the law. Only one, Jesus Christ. Uh, and that the only way, the only way you come to the Father, the only way that you do that is by being born again and accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We spoke about that yesterday at the memorial service. Uh, and so we don't know for sure Nicodemus leaves. We don't see him submitting to Jesus at that point. But we have a pretty good idea that at the end, uh, he did become a born-again Christian because we noticed that he and Joseph of Arimathea came to the cross and took the body of Jesus down and put him in the tomb. So for him to publicly put himself on display at that point, Nicodemus must have had a personal experience with Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us everything, but that's something that we need to do. And so we understand right there in the Gospel of John that the starting point of Christian life is rebirth. All of us are outside the will of God. None of us is righteous, and we must repent and submit our lives to the cross. Uh, and I said yesterday, and I'll repeat it again, Repentance is not the start of a Christian life. It is the Christian life. Repentance, the ongoing act of repentance, the ongoing act of effectively having our feet washed as Jesus did it with the disciples. That's what for us uh, repentance is uh, after we're saved. So that's an important, important aspect of the Gospel of John. Then we come across the Samaritan woman, which is one of my favorite uh, passages in Scripture. I love the fact of how Jesus reaches out to someone who is the lowest of the low of the cultural food chain. Um, if you were a woman, you, you couldn't even give testimony in court. You couldn't be a witness. Uh, you were relegated to second-class status in every way. That's one of the great things that Christianity did. It elevated women to equality with men. All right, That's what it did. Uh, and so here's Jesus uh, in the midday, at a well, and this woman comes out to the well because she came at midday because she was despised uh, and persecuted. She couldn't walk with the other women. They looked down on her. Uh, and and uh, because she had had five husbands and was now living with a guy without marriage. And so she, this woman had a lot of dark passages in her life. And she comes to the well, and Jesus reaches out to her. And, and what a message that is to me, that Jesus reaches out to those most in need, who are suffering, who are in pain, who are despised, who are persecuted. He doesn't go to the high and mighty, all right? Jesus doesn't go to people that don't think they need him. He goes to people that have a desperate need. 
Uh, and, and that's the gracious thing about our Lord and Savior, and that's the great, greatest thing about God, how he reaches out to people like that. And so there it is, and he tells the woman, you, you, I will give you water that will, you will never thirst again. Uh, and as she comes to faith right there at the well, uh, and you see this, uh, as she recognizes, you know, you, you must be the Christ. You must be the Messiah. And Jesus says there, it was the first time that he admitted it publicly, you have well spoken. You have well spoken. Uh, and so what happens? When you see how God intervenes in a life and you see the transformational aspect of a life, that's one of the things that happens when we become born again. There's a transformation in our lives. We're not the same as we were before. God changes our lives. So what happens? She goes back to town and she spreads the word of Jesus. She becomes effectively the first evangelist in the New Testament that we see. She goes back tells the entire town what she saw, and despite the fact that she was relegated to the bottom of the cultural food chain, she brings back all these people, come see this man who told me everything about myself. And so the entire town comes out. And what happens? The entire town uh, in Samaria gets saved. They become Christians. Uh, and such an extent that they prevail upon Jesus to say several days more, when no a righteous Jew would actually even walk through Samaria. But you see the impact of, of Jesus uh, to people who have accepted him. Uh, what, a, what a great passage that is. Now, in John 6, we see one of the great miracles of the Lord when he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. How about that? Pretty good. Uh, 5,000 men... Theologians believe that there were probably about 15,000 people when you add the women and the children. Uh, and so five loaves and two fish probably fed uh, 15,000 people. And, and John is demonstrating in his writing, demonstrating that Jesus satisfies in all things. He is the bread of life. Not only is he the bread of spiritual life, but he's the bread of physical life. When we become one with Christ, he anoints us and blesses us, not only for eternity, but in this life. In this life, he will give you everything that you need. Everything that, that you require to be taken care of, Christ will make sure that you have that. No Christian that is dependent upon God is left at the curb. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Nobody. Uh, Christ is sufficient in every aspect of his life. Uh, he gives us food, and not only does he give it to you so that you can eat, but he gives an abundance. There were 12 baskets of food left over. Can you imagine? The point of that story that John is giving is that Jesus is super abundant in every way. And, and one of the things that I want to say to you at this point is that when John wrote the Gospel of John, he was about 90 years old. So for those of you here who think you're a little too old to be advancing in the kingdom of God, I would say, open your eyes. If a 90-year-old man could be used by God to write what many people think is the most important gospel in the Bible, along with Romans, uh, God still has work for you to do, okay? You're, you're not done. You don't retire from Christ. You retire from the world, but you don't require retire from Jesus. Uh, and I told a story uh, yesterday that I will repeat here. You know, John... Uh, was sentenced to die in a, in a cauldron of boiling oil. Uh, you don't see this in the, in the Bible, but we know it from secondary writings. His, his disciple, 
was Polycarp, who became a bishop. Uh, and Polycarp wrote that John was sentenced to die in a boiling cauldron of oil in Rome. And when he was put into the cauldron of oil, uh, and what happened? He basically paddled around for a half an hour. <laughs> paddled around for a half an hour until they, they obviously said, this guy's not going to die, all right? It looks like a hot tub for him. <laughs> so they pull him out. They pull him out of the oil, and then Caesar uh, uh, wanted to execute him, all right? Wanted to execute him. Uh, but he was warned by the Senate that he couldn't do that because under Roman law, you could only be subject to capital punishment one time. And that is why, if you ever wondered, how did he get to, F, to uh, uh, Patmos? How did he get to Patmos in isolation? It was because they couldn't, by law, kill him, but they could uh, put him in isolation. And so they sent him to Patmos, and that is where he wrote the Gospel of John. That is where he wrote Revelation, uh, that God gave him those revelations in that isolated environment. So you see how God is, how, how even where there may be some tough times in your life, but God is orchestrating the whole thing uh, behind the scenes. Uh, what, what a wonderful message. John chapter 7, the woman caught in adultery. Again, you see the heart of God. Again, you see how God uh, is not judgmental, how God really refrains from being judgmental, uh, but how he's designed to uh, free the lost. And so there it is. God stands for justice uh, and wisdom and compassion. And you know that story where the religious elite basically had tried to trap Jesus. And they set this up where, where they had witnesses all lined up uh, to be able to testify against this woman. Can you imagine? We don't even see anything about the guy. Uh, I don't even know if the guy was in on it. But whatever it is, it's this poor woman who was caught in this trap uh, and they wanted Jesus because under the law, under the Jewish law, she had to be stoned to death. So now that was the conundrum. Here's your Jesus, people. He's going to tell you that you've got to be stoned to death. Not a very compassionate guy, is he? But if he, doesn't, if he doesn't abide by the law, if he violates the law of Moses, then what kind of a Jew is he? Okay, You see what they had done, the trap that they had set. And so uh, Jesus, really, it's amazing how God focuses on this. Uh, and, and Jesus uh, makes those, that famous statement, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And you know, they say in the scripture that he was writing on the, in the dirt. He was scribbling in the dirt. Uh, and some theologians believe that he was actually writing the sins of those guys that stood there. Would that surprise you? Okay? Because one thing we know about Jesus, he had supernatural knowledge. Even though he'd given up his, his deity, uh, he still maintained supernatural knowledge. So uh, theologians believe that as he was writing in the dirt, he was listing the sins of those guys who were sitting there with stones. Uh, and, and so then when he turns and said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Well, God, you know, they're, they're convicted. Who of us, who, who among us can, can judge somebody when we ourselves are full of sin? We bow before the cross of God, and we understand that. And so you, you see that, and, and again, it speaks to the compassion in the heart of God. That's why I say to you that our job is not to judge people, all right? 
Our job is not to render judgment. You're going to hell. I want you to know something. You're, I hope you like heat, because where you're going, it's going to be hot, okay? Uh, and, and yet, instead, God wants you to love the world, to embrace the sinner, to bring them in. Listen, we're never going to save anybody if we leave them out in the sidewalk, are we? We want to bring them into the kingdom of God. We want to bring them into church. We want to do that in so many ways. And so that's what God is telling you, just the way Jesus did this here, uh, to embrace them with love, not with judgment, but embrace them with love, and then let the convicting power of the Holy Spirit uh, take over. Because we are not the saviors. We are the messengers. That's what God has designed us to be. We are the messengers. And so uh, it's important for us uh, to understand that. Now, in John chapter 10, Jesus begins to tell us that he gives his life for his sheep. He separates out his role from those people that are hired hands and those people who are actually shepherds. And he is the shepherd. I give my life for my sheep. Uh, and so we learn here in John 10 about the good shepherd, who the good shepherd is. Of course, it's Jesus. Uh, and it is through the proclamation of the cross that men and women are saved. We are only saved by the proclamation of the cross. It's the cross alone. Jesus plus nothing else saves us. You know, I spoke about yesterday about the danger of cultural Christianity, which, is, which has now ensnared many people in this country, cultural Christianity, in which people basically have devised their own religion, their own, their own uh, philosophy. All good people go to, go to God. Where are you reading that? You're reading that because that's in your mind. That's not in the Bible. There's no question about it. That's not the Bible. That's not the faith that we follow. Uh, and, and, you know, God wants all of us to be happy. No, God wants all of us to be saved. And when you're saved, you're happy. Happiness comes by being saved because then you know you're in the hand of God in every aspect of your life. But the happiness doesn't come first. Salvation comes first. Uh, and so that, that becomes an important understanding. Uh, and, and so here we understand that there, there's only one way to God. It's through Jesus Christ. And, and, and the other thing that Jesus said uh, in that chapter is that the only unity we will have as a people is through Jesus. We won't have unity because we follow a man. We won't have unity because we follow a doctrine. We will have unity when we follow Christ and through Christ the cross. That's the nature of, of uh, unity. Uh, the church is Christ's. It's not anybody else. We are all under shepherds. You understand that? We are all under shepherds. There's only one shepherd, Jesus Christ. doesn't matter who we are. And when we appoint a new pastor in this church, that man will be an under-shepherd, okay? He won't be the shepherd. He'll be the under-shepherd, under-shepherd to Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's important to understand this. All of us are under Christ. None of us, none of us is greater than any other one. We are bowed in submission to Jesus in every way. Uh, and, and it's important to understand that. Then in chapter 11, we see the heart of Christ in Lazarus. Um, and what a beautiful picture that is. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. But this is God. Fully God, fully man. He wept. His heart was broken when he saw the world that he created that was meant to live forever. Man wasn't destined to die. 
Man was, was not destined to taste death, but because sin had entered into the world and the man deviated, man deviated from the will of God, then death entered into it. And, and Jesus stood there at the tomb and saw all of the family and friends of Lazarus and the town people weeping because of the loss of this man, and his heart was struck. And so it tells us that he wept. But that tells you what the heart of God is for you and me, how God loves you so much. He cares for you. Yes, that he weeps. Yes, that he's sorry. That's the, that's the compassion of Christ. That's the difference between our, our faith and a lot of other faiths. You're not going to see that kind of compassion uh, in the Muslim faith. You're not going to see that, all right? But you're going to see that in Christianity. And when God calls us as Christians, when God saves us, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, one of the first fruit that comes into that life is kindness, tenderheartedness, a love for the lost, a love for the downhearted. That only comes because Jesus is in your heart. If you're a human being without Jesus, it's hard to believe that that same quality of mercy will be in you. It becomes because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so you see this incredible um, image of Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. And there it is, Christ defeating death. That miracle probably sent Jesus to the cross because that was about one week before uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, and uh, it's when he did that that the religious elite said, this guy's got to go. This is trouble. He's bringing dead people out of the tomb. They're, they're, we're not going to have anybody following us. We got to get rid of this guy. Can you imagine the power of God on display? But you see how evil is? This is the nature of evil. It beclouds our eyesight, all right? It clouds our eyesight. Uh, and, and so that's what happens. And even though these people thought they were religious, thought they were serving God, uh, ultimately uh, they felt that Jesus had to go, even though they saw these great miracles. In John 13, we see the example of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, and I love that passage. Can you imagine God stooping to wash your feet? That's what it was. God stooping to wash your feet. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I mean, I'm so uh, touched by that. In fact, I have to say that we have a member of our class that when they, uh, one of them proposed to the other on New Year's Day, I'm not going to say who it was, but on the pier of Naples, because this man was so impressed with this, he actually washed the feet of his fiance, indicating the nature of his heart. Isn't that beautiful? You see, that's the nature of what God does. Uh, and so uh, understanding that Jesus is saying, yes, you're saved. He's talking to the 11. Yes, you're saved, but you still need to be, have your feet washed. Why is that Christ? Why is that? Because in the day-to-day -day walking in this world, the evil and dirt come up and soil us. And as we're soiled, it begins to cut off our communication with God the Father. All right? Which is why we need to be in the Bible. Why we need to study the Bible. Why we need to read Scripture. Why we need to pray. Because that, all of those aspects and the day-to-day -day repentance God, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that. Lord, wash me. And that washing takes place. Jesus washing you uh, every single day of your life so that the communication stays open between you and the Father because that's how you continue to have your walk. And so never, never forget this, that God wants to wash us daily, that we need to be a part of this. Um, and, and, and we see this 
in this passage where Jesus describes his state of mind. Uh, and he says there that all things were given to him by God. All things given to him by God. He had authority over everything. If you don't think that Jesus couldn't, uh, could stop going to the cross, you don't understand the power of God. Jesus willingly gave up his life to go to the cross because that was the nature of, of his mission uh, because all things were given to him. And so uh, Jesus expects each and every one of us to have a servant's heart. That is the nature of what we do. That's what the Gospel of John is about. It shows us that here is your God, Jesus Christ, with a servant's heart. He is the shepherd taking care of his flock, willingly going to the cross, willingly accepting the vituperation of men uh, and suffering and persecution, accepting it. Uh, And yet here he is bowing before men uh, and washing their feet to demonstrate to them this is what we do for each other. Uh, You are a servant. And so if you're a Christian, the first job you have as, as a Christian is to be a servant, not to raise yourself up, not to be a big shot, uh, not to look to get to the front of the line, but basically to look to stay in the back of the line, uh, and to bow in submission to God, to, to be his hands and feet in so many ways. And then in, in John 14, uh, what, it basically gives me, me personally, my favorite verse in the Bible. Uh, and it's a verse that I preach at every funeral that I do. Uh, and, I, and I said it yesterday, and I will say it again every time. When Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. Amen. Period. Period. No man cometh to the Father except through me. You don't need to have a PhD in theology to understand Christianity. You don't need to have spent years and years of studying the Bible to get to the heart of God. He just gave you the heart of God in one verse. No man cometh to the Father except through me. And as I've studied and prayed on this, one of the things that that I've concluded in reading this uh, is that coming to the Father is not merely getting to heaven. Yes, you're not going to get to heaven except through Jesus. Yes, you're not going to spend eternity with God unless you're in Jesus. But it's even more than that as it relates to your life here. The very prayer life that you have, the very communication that you have can only be made through Jesus because otherwise those prayers don't reach the throne of God. That's what it means. That's a pretty big thing to understand. All right, No man cometh to the Father. Well, coming to the Father is not just physically coming to the Father. It's coming in prayer also. So your prayer life is disconnected unless you are in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that from time to time God might not make an exception to that to someone who's trying to come to faith. But that's the general rule. Uh, We will not see God. Our prayers will not be answered unless we are in Christ Jesus. Uh, And this becomes uh, such a poignant part of the Gospel of John. Really, that's what the Gospel of John is all about. Elevating and making it clear what Jesus is, the central aspect of our life. Look, folks, here's the key to understanding this. 
uh, is that when we become sold out to Christ, when we have submitted our lives to him, when we have accepted him, he becomes the transformational essence of our life, okay? We don't, it, it actually defines us. When people see us, they know that there's something different about us. And if you would say to me, well, I don't, I don't think there's anything different from me than people in the world, well, I'd have to say, then you need to get on your knees and ask God about that. Because you can't be saved if there's not some major difference between you and the world. All right? And that's what this is about. That's how God defines us. He transforms us. And he pours his gifts into us. All the gifts of the Spirit that he gives are because you are transformed by Christ. You don't get those gifts unless you've been transformed by Christ. And you begin to uh, respond to Christ by recognizing that everything you are and everything that you have is from God. That's why when people say to me, well, what's the tithe? Is it the net or the gross? And you come and you read these verses, you laugh. The net or the gross? The net or the gross? What do you need to have, an audit? I mean, seriously, is that how you're going to respond to God? I need to have an audit so I can give you a correct answer? No, the correct answer is your heart. Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. How much, Father, of your substance do you want me to give back? Now, when you start thinking like that, that's when you bow to God and you bow to the cross. That's the transformational aspect of Christ. You don't need an accountant, all right? You understand this in so many ways. And then in John 15, he talked about the vine and the branches as an explanation of what our walk is with him. We cannot have a transformational, successful life unless we are attached to the vine, and the vine is Jesus Christ. We are the branches. The branches survive because they are in, in God. The Holy Spirit will not come through to us unless we are firmly planted uh, through the vine. Uh, and, and Jesus begins to talk here in, in chapter 16 about the Holy Spirit, indicating that he has to leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come, that fully one-third of the Trinity would come once, once in fact, uh, he, would, he would leave this world. And the Holy Spirit would convict people of sin. And that's precisely what the Holy Spirit does, convicting the people of sin uh, and, and working through us. The Holy Spirit would work through us to extend the message of God. And for those of you who, who say, well, you know, I, I'm concerned because I know you believe in the Trinity. I know we believe in the Trinity, but I, I never saw the word Trinity in the Scriptures. How do we know that? Well, I would say that the best way to know that is when Jesus was baptized by John. Because when Jesus was baptized as John, what did you see? You see Christ, uh, uh, Jesus, God himself, being baptized by, by John the Baptist and the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the second part of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit descending as a dove on Christ. There it is. The, whole, the Trinity all working together at one time at that place. So yes, without a doubt, uh, there is a trinity. Uh, in John 17, we see the real Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer as it relates to Jesus Christ, because at that point, Jesus is communicating directly to the Father. And we are allowed effectively to eavesdrop and see Jesus' prayer and, and what he says. And what he's doing there is, first of all, 
He's praying that God will allow him to finish his uh, uh, ministry, that whatever he does will bring glory to God. That's what he's saying. Lord, glorify me, and by glorifying me, let the glory go to you. Let the world see, Father, what you're doing through me. And then he prays for his disciples. And this is so poignant and profound to me, that Jesus would be praying for us. Right now, he is in heaven at the right hand of God. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. Uh, and what a wonderful passage that is to understand that he's doing that. And that, that by praying for us, he's asking God to strengthen us and to lift us up so that we can continue uh, to do his will in, in every possible way. What an amazing passage that is. Uh, and you see how our Jesus, how great he is. And so uh, he is praying for us, praying for our concerns, praying for our needs. Uh, and so you need to trust the Lord for your life. You need to say to God, uh, as you are a committed Christian, Father, I want to serve you. I want to walk with you, but I need you to open the doors that you want me to go through. I need you to lead me in every way. Show me your will. Demonstrate your will, Lord. And when you demonstrate your will to me, I will follow. I will submit. And that's one of the great bywords of being a Christian. Submission. Submission. Meaning we bow to the will of God. We don't do our own thing. All right? In ministry, we don't do our own thing. I don't just sit down and start saying, what should I do today? What should I preach on today? I don't do that. I pray to the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to say? What words do you have for, for me to say? And if I, if I go with, the, with a, a heart uh, of submission, God gives me that uh, in every way. I mean, when I did the funeral message for Fran, I was walking uh, with Linda and just kind of silently contemplating and praying with God, and all of a sudden it came clear to me. It was like clear what had to be said. I can't explain it. Uh, the same thing came to me about Romans, that God really through his Holy Spirit tells us. But here's the thing. Now we have to walk. Now we have to bow. Now we have to submit. Okay? Uh, you know, you ask God to open a door or close the door, and then many of us do this. Well, I know, God, you want me to kick open the closed door. <laughs> what do you mean kick open the closed door? You asked God to close it. It's closed. Recognize his will. Follow his will in every way. Uh, and so the last thing I want to speak to you about is to recognize that the 11 men that followed Jesus uh, left him when he was arrested. They walked away. They were in despair. They were brokenhearted uh, and because their world had collapsed. But what happened? What changed all that? The one thing that changed that was the resurrection. When Jesus demonstrated that he had defeated death, when he walked back into that upper room and they saw the risen Christ, the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection changed those men forever. And those 11 men would give their lives, every single one of them would give their lives up for Jesus. Now, if you wonder how somebody would give their life up, you think they'd give their life up for a fake? For a fake? Please. You give your life up because you've come face to face with the risen God. And there you understand that everything that you have is now measured by God himself. And that's why those 11 men would give up their lives. And that's why the early church would go to their deaths in the thousands. In the thousands because they had a vision of the risen Christ. 
And I would say this to you as I bring us to a close, when you reflect on these messages, that's the one thing I would ask you to keep in your mind, a vision of the risen Christ, a vision of the cross, a vision that that transforms you, a vision that that redefines you, a vision that that's what you need to bring to a lost world. That's the only thing that counts. If Jesus didn't die on the cross and was resurrected, then you know what? Go out and have pancakes, because your time is better spent. But if in fact, if in fact, as hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses saw him walk around, and these men gave their lives to him, then the one thing you know for certain is he is God. He defeated death, and you will defeat it also through him. Amen? Amen. Let's close. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the lessons that you've given us, the words that you've given us, the mission of Jesus, Father, salvation, the list never ends. We're so grateful for everything that you brought into our lives, Father. I ask you that this message continue to resonate in our heart as we reflect upon what you have done and what we have learned through the Gospel of John. Thank you, Father, for giving us that gift. Thank you for the Apostle John who honored you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus who has saved us all. And thank you, Father, for everything that you've done to bring us together as a family. Be with our dear family. Protect them. Keep them together this summer in every way and bless them. Bless my substitute, Lord. Help him to have a strong summer as well. And protect us all until we see each other again in September. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Amen.